Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 84, with Ross Yoshida. Welcome to episode 84 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T. Adam Martin on Twitter. A quick bit of housekeeping first. If you are curious about the skip and sequence numbers from our last episode, that is because it was a halftime episode and those are now for community members only. I will get into that a little bit later at the end of the show, but if you're curious for more information, head over to makersofsport.com slash community or check out episode 85 where I go a bit more in depth on the value of the Makers of Sport member community. So on today's episode, I'm very happy to welcome a gentleman that is a bit of a veteran in the MLB in-house design game. Ross Yoshida is joining us. Ross is an LA native. He's the director of graphic design for the Los Angeles Dodgers, where he's been since 2001 with a bit of a stint in between running his own design studio. Ross is also a very active member of the sports design community in forums such as episode 52 guest Chris Creamer's sportslogos.net. And he also discusses sports design occasionally in a bit of a satirical manner on his Twitter, which uh, I will give out later in the show. In addition, Ross is on the board of Major Level Creative Connect, or MLC Connect for short, which is a conference for creative professionals working in-house in pro sports or other major Division One athletic departments. Welcome to the show, Ross. Glad we were finally able to connect for, for podcasts. Hey, hey. Um, so for listeners, Ross and I were going to try and do the podcast uh, in person at MLC Connect this year, but the conference is just super jam-packed with events, and obviously Ross being a part of the organizational team, it's it's just tough to find times for 45 minutes to an hour for a quiet spot for the interview, so glad, uh, glad we can make this happen on Skype. <laughs> for sure. So Ross, I know you've listened to a couple episodes, and you're probably familiar with kind of how we begin the show, but for those that may not know you, why don't you take this time to go just a little bit more in depth uh, than the bio I gave in the opening about your career, sort of leading up to today in a bird's eye view, so to speak. Uh, well, it all started when my uh, parents married a bowling alley back in 1973. <laughs> uh, no. Um, <laughs> Uh, my sports graphic design uh, career started in 2001 uh, when I started with the Los Angeles Dodgers full-time. Um, I worked there until uh, 2004, and uh, because of uh, various circumstances, I decided to freelance for uh, in 2004, and um, you know that old saying, uh, from those mafia movies where they say, uh, like, uh, I keep trying to get out, but they keep pulling me back in. Well, that's what happened <laughs> right, in, right. in uh, 2008 uh, when I was asked to return to the Los Angeles Dodgers in, a, in an expanded role, uh, not just as a graphic designer, but more as a creative overseer. And uh, at the time, I was freelancing and I was struggling with the decision. But uh, uh, are you married? Yeah, yeah. Okay, married well, with, uh, the with wife, two kids. The wife made that decision very easy to, <laughs> cool. to get my ass back to work and start bringing in a regular check. So <laughs> I've been go, back man. with the Dodgers ever since. 
Nice, nice. Well, I, I did, you know, obviously I do a lot of research on my guests before, uh, before these episodes, but just looking at your LinkedIn profile and a little bit in those early years, you know, after college, uh, you went to work for a place called Pelada Teamworks. Is it Pelada, Pelada? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which is, it's not necessarily a traditional sports organization, as you mentioned, but, you know, they have, they, I guess they kind of dabble because it's a, uh, they, I guess, focus on bike rides and ch- right. for charity and activism. Uh, I'm curious, was there anything just in those early years that you were able to take away from that particular organization or even your next venture where you became a, a partner and art director for a, a creative shop that, that you're able to, that you were able to, that sort of, I guess, paved the way for you to make your way to the Dodgers? Yeah, most definitely, especially the, that first, uh, that first quote unquote career job at Pilata Teamworks. Um, Pilata Teamworks was a, was a company that put on outdoor sporting events. So um, you would, if you heard of the AIDS ride or the Avon three day mm-hmm. uh, breast cancer walk, um, that's the company put, that put those on back in the day. Um, and they had several other events going on too. Um, so they had a graphic design uh, staff of about three people uh, it varied between two and three people, and uh, I was a part of that. That was my first job out of school. Um, uh, God, I was so wet behind the ears. I didn't. I, I literally, literally didn't know anything. Um, so, you know, what I learned during my early years of my career is just how to be fast. Um, you're doing production work. You're basically doing everything, running from the gamut of business cards to to large format banners. Um, it just taught me how to uh, deal with a, a bunch of different design challenges and, uh, and just, you know, crank them out as quickly as possible. And, you know, I know for like really true creatives, like hearing that might be kind of tough, but being fast is definitely an asset when you're working in pro sports. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think, you know, the fact that sports changes so much and it seems like it's just only going to get faster from here on out with sort of this just 24 hour news cycle and the, and the tweets and everything you got to just keep up to date with. Yeah. Yeah. So I think sometimes in our careers, we, they sometimes can create a bit of a pattern. And I think with you, I've noticed that there are these sort of moments throughout your own journey where you break free for a little bit, do the entrepreneurial thing. And obviously you touched on this some in the beginning, but um, just to kind of go a little more in depth there. And, and you, you, you left this company and you went to become a partner um, or, you know, eventually later on you ended up founding your own studio. It's, it's almost cyclical uh, and working in house and running your own shop. I think most of us know are inherently different mentalities. So I'm curious, uh, can you talk a little bit about your early decision after this particular bike, uh, you know, this organization that you're working at to become a partner in a creative shop that, um, and then eventually led to joining the Dodgers. You make it sound like it it was actually bigger than it was. It was basically me and two friends (laughs) that kind of worked out of our own homes and, uh, just, you know, tried to scrape together whatever projects we could. Um, it was a good experience, teaches you a lot about the business being on your own, as you know, you know, there's pros and cons to being on your own and working for a company. I'm glad I was able to experience both. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I think I've actually in the past have went into business. That's even a whole other dynamic. I mean, starting your own studio and then going into business with other people, that's that's its own animal, so to speak. Because <laughs> you have yeah, to sort of, yeah. uh, you know, there's different personalities involved. Everyone has a stake. Everyone has their own sort of goals for where they see it going. And basically you're trying to sort of all point in the same direction, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Against all odds, we're still friends today. Um. That's great, man. <laughs> those things, those things. Yeah. <laughs> Usually, you know, there's a you got a fifty fifty shot of those things going <laughs> going south. Yeah, but uh, we put that together basically because we were all kind of out of work, and we thought if we could kind of just form Voltron together, we could uh, get some get get some more projects and just work on them together. And you know, we worked on a couple fairly large projects and it worked out and we were together for a little while and you know it, it ran its course but it was a good experience so yeah uh, like you said just to learn how to work with uh, other 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 people and uh you know kind of take in you know, two other voices it was it was challenging but it was fun and you know all that stuff it was right. it was a good experience what's well, as as somebody uh, like myself i just read a lot about entrepreneurs and kind of follow their stories. I'm, I'm a sucker for biographies actually. <laughs> um, but it's, there's so many businesses that are started in that way where somebody got laid off or, or something like that. And it was kind of like, you just got to do what you got to do to make ends meet. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I think it's like, I think there's probably a large percentage of people that maybe just didn't have in their mind, like, yeah, we are going to start a business, but it's something that's maybe in the back of their mind. And then they're just forced, their hand is forced, you know, you're out of work and, and you got to make things happen. Totally. Um, well, that's how my second uh, freelance stint started too. <laughs> oh yeah. No kidding. Well, we'll definitely, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So the call, when the call came to, to go work for the Dodgers, um, um, how did that? How did that come about? Was it a was it a position you saw open? You reached out to them. How did how did you sort of get that inroad into the organization? Yeah, it's kind of just one of those crazy uh, cool stories. Um, when I was in college, uh, I worked part time for the Dodgers, uh, basically just answering phones. Uh, I they used to have this phone line. Three two three two two four one hit, which uh, which uh, local Angelinos will know that number if they're Dodger fans from back in the day. You basically ordered, uh, called that number to order tickets uh, or talk to a customer service rep, and that's what I did part time. I would go to school from uh, seven to noon, and then my one o'clock shift answering phones at Dodger Stadium would would uh, would be right after, and uh, I did that uh, starting in nineteen ninety six. Uh, so 96 to through uh, 2000, that's what I was doing part-time. And uh, just to make, you know, even when I got out of school, I still did that job just to kind of make a few extra bucks and just be around the stadium and, you know, being the baseball fan that I was and single, just hang out at the stadium, watch games and after my shift was over. And uh, in 2001, uh, the graphic design position opened up uh, with the Dodgers and I uh, I basically jumped on it, took my portfolio in, uh, did the full interview, uh, and then uh, the person who was interviewing me at the time, who later became my boss, asked me, well, when can you start? I said, I could start tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So you, I mean, it's, I think it just kind of speaks to sometimes you just have to take it in any way you can if you really are passionate about getting into sports and 
Um, you know, even if that means working, working tickets and, and that type of thing, especially for these kids that are right now, say in college and you have the ability to go and, and do these types of things. Whereas, you know, a, you, a guy like you and me, and we got kids and, <laughs> and wives and that type of thing. So it's a little different nowadays, but, um, so I like just to go a little bit more in, in the Dodgers themselves as an organization. I mean, they're, they have a great visual history and, and I know, I mean, you being an, an LA native, like you, so I'm, I'm assuming you just were always a sports guy growing up and that type of thing. Huge sports fan my whole life. Um, and the Dodgers were my first love, yes, as far as teams go. So that position, that graphic design position, that ha- I mean, I'm assuming that was the first, I mean, because we're talking 2001, mm-hmm. th- this wasn't sort of a prevalent role in organizations, I would imagine, at that time. So was that You're the right. first one ever? I don't think it's the first one ever. Uh, the Dodgers were definitely one of the first. Um, I know there was probably a handful of teams at that time across the four leagues that had their own designers. Pretty sure we weren't the first, but we're definitely one of the first. Yeah. Well, and kind of going back to what I was mentioning earlier, the Dodgers, they have a great visual history. And honestly, I'm actually a bit partial to the color scheme, having went to a and played sports at a high school that's colors were red, white, and blue. Um, <laughs> so honestly, I think they have one of the best uniforms in sports. And actually, a, a good friend of mine in high school all the way over here in Kentucky, believe it or not, was a huge Dodger supporter. It's actually still today. And I can vividly remember the merchandise as a part of my early sports memories. So I'm curious, as someone that was a fan like yourself growing up and and to, you know this sort of first team that you ever supported, what it was like when you finally got that opportunity to work for an organization that has such a visual history, and then also how does that sort of play into the seriousness as you pro- as you approach your role as director in graphic design in terms of even leaving a legacy with your own work with the organization, so to speak? Yeah, well, uh, I will say this uh, almost to a fault. Very, I'm very protective of the Dodger brand, the visual brand, um, the unit that the uniforms, the logos. Um, since the beginning, just uh, you know, realized the scope of that and the the, the importance of um, the Dodger visual brand with you know within the within the uh, the uh, landscape of sports. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I kind of touched on this at Connect, but uh, there's times where I've actually threatened to quit or or lose my job over over the smallest things. The last the last. Uh, Thing being the the white button on the top of the cap, <laughs> I was willing to go down. I was willing to go down fighting for that white button, but you know that white button on the top of the cap has been there since 1938. So you know that's just something where I feel like if someone's kind of trying to impede on that, and someone's kind of trying to make their own mark and change that, you know, it's my right. job almost to protect that. Right. Well, you actually even refer to yourself in your Twitter bio as the the branding police, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, and that's and that's a huge part of my job. Uh, you know, all the ads and uh, collateral that come in from outside uh, licensees or outside uh, partners, sponsors uh, that comes through that comes uh, over my desk, and uh, we got to make sure the logos are correct. The logo's at the right angle. They're using the right blue. As you can imagine, we're very sensitive about our blue, our colors. Uh-huh. Um, just the whole uh, 
the whole visual package uh, we're very protective of. Do you see, I mean, because it is a, you know, the organization has a great history and obviously we've, we've kind of reiterated over the visual history of the organization, which I do want to go back, go into a little bit deeper here in a bit. Um, but having, being a dad now and having kids and, uh, and that type of thing, do you see the work? Because you're obviously very passionate about the historical look and feel of the organization, but do you sort of see your role as, uh, leaving a bit of a legacy too, because I think that's one thing a lot of people take for granted in working in sports is that you know you're essentially stamping a bit of your own legacy on a on a particular time. As far as the overall look, um, I'll tell you this: it's it's very comforting to know that my kids will know the same Dodger uniform that I did. Um, they'll know the same Dodger uniform that their grandparents did, their grand their great grandparents did. Um, that's a cool thing to me. The Dodger, just the Dodger visual brand has not changed in so long. Um, as far as uh, leaving a legacy, yeah, I'm definitely not lost on that. Uh, and you know, when we have to design a commemorative patch or, uh, we make decisions pertaining to the uniform or the logos. Yes. I'm, I'm really conscious of, uh, you know, the legacy that might leave. And, uh, it's definitely a responsibility when we did the, uh, the kind of the cleaning up of all the logos in 2011, uh, you know, we were, that was a year long process. And, you know, the average person probably couldn't tell you the differences in the logos now, but that was a year long process just to make those little tweaks because the whole time you're very conscious of, you know, how are these tweaks going to be, uh, going to be accepted within the visual history of the Dodgers. So right, definitely uh, a responsibility. So in, in speaking about that particular logo and, and then making those tweaks, that logo I, for people that aren't aware, um, the, the original script was created by probably one of sports, most iconic fine artists, uh, a guy named Lon Keller in the 1930s. Yeah. Uh, but you guys made the decision to make these tweaks on the logo. So can you, and, and I know that it's probably had tweaks over time, but what were the sort of driving reasons in why you decided to make these particular tweaks? Well, the reasons were very practical, um, and yes, you're right. There were there have been several since the original Lawn Keller illustration. There, there's there have been several tweaks to the script. I want to say there's probably been about 10, 10 tweaks throughout throughout time mm-hmm. to the Dodger logo, um, and in particular our logo script, which is different than the jersey script. But we could get to that later on. Um, the decision to, to to make those tweaks was very practical in that. Uh, we were using art that that uh, w- was probably illustrated um, twenty years prior. Uh-huh. Um, so there were just uh, things we needed to do to the logo to sharpen it up. If you if you could think about our logo with the with the red, we call it the shooting ball. Uh-huh. The lines were very thin. We had to thicken those up just for reproductive reasons when we wanted to reduce our logo to like a half inch or so. Right, those thin lines were getting lost. We also came up with a couple new marks. Well, quote unquote new. We 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 encased the uh, the Dodger script in a circle, which you know that's all, always been kind of one of our unofficial logos, like as far as patches and things like that go. But we wanted to make that an official logo because the Dodger script with the shooting ball, when you place it on the, on a photograph or a very busy background, it would just get lost. So we needed that like that that classic circle logo to kind of 
to kind of live in uh, versus applications and things like that. And then uh, if you're thinking of our logos and, you know, the lost, the full Los Angeles Dodgers script that's on our dugout, you know, that's exactly what we we're thinking when we came up with that. We, we needed to create a custom script that, that was horizontal that we could use in horizontal applications. So be that the top of a dugout or just a very thin strip um, we needed to create that logo. So this all came about just because, you know, we, the, the old package was uh, just dated and kind of outlived its usefulness, practical usefulness as far as, uh, you know, all the different design uh, projects we, we, we have today. Yeah. Well, even I've noticed just from, you know, as designers, we tend to look obviously so much more closer at things than, than the general common fan eye, even though they tend to share their opinion a lot more than us. <laughs> um, <laughs> but even things like the, tra- the transition or just like there's a seamlessness to it. I mean, even if you look at the, the, the connection of the G and the E, it actually looks like it's handwritten. Whereas like the, the 2010 version, you know, when, when the G connects to the E, yeah. it's almost like that, that doesn't look right. That doesn't, that's not a seamless transition there. Right. And, and it's funny because even in the old, the original Lon Keller script the e was like that and we we made that conscious decision to kind of smooth it out that transition out and to be honest like i was so used to the the logo how it was the old way it took me a while to get used to the, the new the, even though it's smoother it took me a while to get used to the the, the new transition yeah i bet I bet. Well, even even at the sort of I don't know what you would call it, the little underline thing at the bottom. There's a little more of a curve at the bo- at the at the bottom of it as opposed to, and there's a little more I guess breathing room between the uh, the red mark there, the little red line. Yeah, and uh, it's funny, but the thing that that uh, the the average person usually brings up is the stem from the O. So we got rid of that just to clean it up. And uh, that's the thing people notice, which is funny. I don't know why, but that, that's the one thing people, people notice. And then now, like, internally, we kind of use that as a visual mark and say, if it has a stem, you're using an old logo. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, because that is uh, one of the sort of more glaring things that, that, that once you point that out, uh, I mean, obviously, I noticed that, but the, the E to me seemed a, lo- a lot more of a. I wanted to go a little bit deeper to kind of prove, like, hey, we're designers here. But obviously, that <laughs> that particular that particular O, I mean, that stem also feels unnatural in the other other sort of iterations of the logo because it's when if you think about drawing an O in cursive, where's where does that stem go to once you draw it? You know, it's almost like it's yeah, just stuck there. And, that, and that's kind of what we're going for, just to make it flow a little better. And you can and you can see on the D and like the end of the under flourish, we kind of just sharpen it up a little bit, cleaned it up. It looked weird before. It kind of had like this really sloppy, you know, it's probably reproduced like numerous times, you know, in a Xerox machine and someone probably traced it. And, you know, it was time to update it. So... Right, right. That's how that all came about. Just, just being very practical. It wasn't because, you know, Ross Yoshida wanted to tweak the logo and say, "Look what I did." <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think something that's interesting to me too in this this modern era of logos is, you know, historically there was sort of you wanted to make it look be as if it could be printed in the shape of a dime, right? If you think about like old school sort of 
printed graphic design fundamentals. But now, you know, how does it look in a Twitter avatar, which is like, you know, 100 by 100 pixels or whatever, and, and it gets a little, little fuzzy. You know, you got to kind of pixel hint some things or whatever. So the, the challenges of, or the constraints are so much different today in what we're creating as far as logos are concerned than, than what they used to be. And it just makes me wonder what, <laughs> how's it going to be in the future? Because there's always, it's just always evolving. Well, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, <laughs> well, that's why. If I could predict the future, I'd have, I'd have played my winning lotto numbers. Yeah, now. there you go, man. There you go. So I do want to talk a little bit about, we've. I remember we had a Twitter conversation a while ago. You guys, you have a great looking business card, first of all. Um, I know you designed <laughs> that. And I kind of want to hear the story behind it because you mentioned on Twitter that it was like, what's this, six years in the making or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you got my old card last year at Connect. Um but uh, they're almost like retro chic, you know? Like they had uh-huh. the, uh, the raised lettering. It's funny, I have one in front of me right now. It just looked like it was out of like the Mad Men era. Uh-huh. Um, and in that way, it was kind of cool, but uh, it was very poorly designed. And uh, the funny thing is, it wasn't even using an official logo of ours. Wow. Uh, so, you know, that was like actually one of, one of my pet projects from the beginning, I wanted to change the business card to something that, you know, I'd be proud to give out as a designer. Um, you know, it's funny because when I would give out the old business card and people that have received business cards from me know this, you know, I'd always give the disclaimer, we didn't design it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the, the business card um, design actually... Uh, Six years in the making and uh, two ownership groups, or maybe three ownership groups. Um, and, uh, we finally uh, we finally came to a consensus uh, in the past two months. So uh, yes, that was a tough project, um, but a fun project. And uh, it didn't come out exactly as I wanted, which is uh, you know that's the old. Uh, graphic designer conundrum but uh it didn't come out exactly like i wanted but you know i'm happy with it yeah yeah i think once once you can finally get to a compromise at least you're happy with that's always the that's always a winning scenario and in, in a lot of these things but there is one thing uh w- when we were talking on twitter um and uh, i sort of mentioned the subtle traces of red and there's actually a great story behind the red numbers on the front of the uniforms that have become a bit of a legend, if you will. Uh, episode four guests and I guess maybe baseball's resident visual historian, Todd Radom, wrote a great article about it, which I'll post in the show notes for listeners. But for those that aren't familiar with that story, can you kind of give us the story behind the red uniform numbers? Um, I believe that that red number was supposed to appear on, on, on the front of our jerseys in 1951. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, uh, and uh, that's of course the year of uh, the Bobby Thompson home run. So uh, we never got to wear those. Those red numbers were supposed to debut in the World Series that year, and we never got to use them. So they debuted the next year, '52. I don't know exactly how they uh, they came about. Uh, there's a, there's the legend that uh, Walter O'Malley's wife actually said the red number looked nice. I'm not sure if that's true. We'll never know the, the real story, but uh, that's the legend. Isn't there something too about television, how it's like putting the number on the front of the uniform allowed the players to be, people to, on watching TV to see the players 
before they sort of hit the ball and took off because they used to only be on the back of the uniforms or something like that. I feel like I watched a 30 for 30, like a, one of those just, it wasn't like a full blown. Almost like a TV number, almost like the numbers they have on sleeves in football. <laughs> uh, that, I don't know the exact story. That wouldn't surprise me if that, that were the case. I do know, and I'm very proud of the fact that the Dodgers are the first team to ever do that, at least in MLB. Yeah. So we're the first team to have that, that front number, and uh, now there's a bunch of copycats that don't even know they're copying us. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's, uh, that's just synonymous, it seems like, with sports. It's just somebody does something, and then nobody knows who actually owned that particular thing. I'm trying to think of an example. I was re- there was something I discovered the other day, and, and I was just like, oh, so that's where that came from. And it's just, it just becomes synonymous with a sport or something, and it just kind of gets lost in the world of the world of history. So you mentioned the Dodgers script on the front of the uniforms is actually different than the logo script. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Where do I start? Um, you know, the, the lay person, when, when you tell them the Dodgers script on the Jersey is different than the script in the logo, they're always like, what it is. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, for someone that's just been very visually inclined my whole life, like I, you know, that's something I noticed at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's always been that way to me, you know? Um, but if you tell the average person, you know, they're different, they get, they're all of a sudden they're very confused. That's just one of those things. Uh, it's just like the, with the Mets, the Lakers, uh, a couple other examples of teams that have different Jersey scripts than, than, than their logo. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things that would never happen today. Uh, it's just one of those cool things that, uh, just evolved over time like that. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, if we use the, the logo script on the Jersey, or if we use the Jersey script in our logo, it would look super weird. So we just leave it, we just leave it the way it is and we've left it the way it is forever. And that's how it will be forever. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think uh, as long as you're the branding police around there, it's, <laughs> it's going to stick around. You know, it's kind of funny. We we do, we you know, as the as as the lead designer for the Dodgers, you know, I do make a conscious decision to kind of just respect history sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just some little quirky things. Um, you know, just things that like uh, like our um, our helmet logo. If you look closely, our helmet logo is is like. A, it's shaped a little differently than the LA logo that appears in our style guide. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ever since hel- helmets came into existence, which is when like the mid sixties, we've always had an, a different LA logo on our helmet. It's just like a thinner, more squat version. And it's just always been like that. And, you know, other teams have uh, been called out on, on, you know, on having a different helmet logo than what appears in their style guide, and they've changed it. Uh, they've, uh, you know, they've they've made it they've made it consistent with uh, all their other cap logos, and we've made the conscious decision to kind of keep it the way it is, even though it's not officially the LA logo in the style guide. So there are those weird little little quirks that we kind of just leave leave be. Do you know where the origin of that LA logo came from? Like who created that? On the helmet? Uh, just the just the, just the original, just the LA monogram. Not necessarily on the helmet, but just in general, the LA logo. Because it's it's a. Uh, I mean, just the 
the way that the letters connect, I mean, it's, it's become like an iconic thing. The original logo was actually created by the cap company. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, the, the, and uh, we have correspondence from uh, back in, ni- back in uh, 1957 or 1958 that, uh, the, where the cap company gave us an example of, uh, of uh, L.A. monograms we could use. And there was actually this uh, one version that just had the L, a block L and a block A. So just imagine our interlocked L.A. just kind of taken apart. Uh, this is the L and the A next to each other. And that's what actually was recommended to us originally back in the day. <laughs> and uh, yeah. thankfully, we didn't go with that. We, Walter O'Malley decided on the interlock LA, which is now one of the iconic logos in, in, in baseball, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, having been with the organization for such a long, long time, uh, and then being able to, you know, one of the, essentially one of the first, one of the first designers in the organization and then being such so passionate about the brand itself and even policing that brand. Did you have a role in building out the style guide over time? Well, there's two style guides. There's the official MLB style guide, um, which the guys at fan brands build and do a great job with, uh, that kind of just has our official logos and our uh, number fonts, colors, uh, uniform information, etc. And then we have our own, style guide that was created internally, which is more of like a corporate style guide. And uh, yes, that one was built from the ground up. It, that, you know, talk about the business cards were six years in the making. I think that style guide might have been six years in the making too. Yeah. <laughs> but it kind of just, uh, it has many of the same things. There's a lot of overlap with the official MLB style guide, but there's other things in there that, that like we include our official font and things like that, which are, are not our jersey font, but our but our, uh, our, our correspondence font that that uh, isn't included. It's kind of a more built out version of the official MLB style guide. Yeah, and I mean, I sort of see the MLB style guide, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, as more of just like a a technical specification kind of thing. Whereas, like what what you guys have done is to kind of give it a little more flexibility for being able to use it in other mediums so to speak yeah exactly and then we also have a little background in in our uh, in our internally built style guide that just kind of tells tells the user uh, the differences from the new from you know current logos from our old logos so you know just there's no confusion and then once people see that they're kind of just more like oh okay yeah I, I actually I love when style guys do that uh, like to me that it's sort of that old school mentality a little bit like actually just back to Kickstarter campaign for uh, I'm gonna pull it pull it over here actually step away from the mic for a minute but I actually just back this Kickstarter campaign it's just man, it's manual it's called manuals one it's a it's sort of sort of a coffee table book and it's just design and identity style guides it's sort of these things came about in this sort of corporate identity era almost like Paul Rand era, if you will, just designing IBM and all these major corporations. And and if you look at those, they tend to be uh, sort of like like that, like what you just described, where you're kind of giving a little bit of the history and why things are used the way they are as opposed to just like a technical specifications. It's almost as if like there's a need for that, almost like a slick like a or one-sheeter type thing where it's like this is literally the technical specifications that you want to send to new era or whoever and then you have the one where it's like this is our history this is our this is our brand you know it's our brand book so to speak 
I'll send it to you after we're done. Oh yeah, dude, I'd love to see that. I'd love to. Um, so you 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 did leave the Dodgers in late 2004, and you went free time or you went freelance full time for four years. Which is, I mean, honestly, that's a telling story of how you were you were able to be successful doing it because most small businesses fail within the first year. Uh, but after that time period, you mentioned jokingly that your wife was like, hey, go back, <laughs> go back to work. Um, and, and now you've, you've obviously been there for an additional eight years, but I'm curious, is there, is there more to that story? I mean, it's cause it's tough to go from doing your own thing to, uh, especially someone like yourself that is sort of passionate and has, and, and doesn't shy away from opinion it's tough to go work for other people again once you've kind of tasted that freedom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always say this, uh, if I was single, if I didn't have a family, I probably would have stayed freelancing. Um, I really enjoyed the freedom. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, going to sleep at 5 a.m. and waking up at noon. Like, <laughs> like that spoke to me. So yeah, you know, like uh, at that time, you know, it was really, it was really a hard decision for me to go back. Um, yeah. Until the wife basically kicked me out of the house. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Made you sleep on the couch. Now, were you, were you married when you, when you left? Yeah, uh, I was married. We had a, you know, my, my oldest daughter was one, was one at the time. Um, so it was tough. Um, and I struggled for a long time, but, uh, you know, fast forward from year one to year four of freelancing, um, I had built up a pretty good client base. Uh, I had regular work, uh, regular, uh, checks coming in. Um, but the opportunity to go back to the Dodgers, uh, just, you know, it was, it was, it was too much to pass up. Yeah. Well, especially with, uh, they, they approached you with a new position, right? Yeah. And, you know, I don't want to talk about it like I didn't want to go back and I was forced into it. That's definitely mm-hmm. not the case. It was definitely a great opportunity. Um, I was going to have an expanded role. And, you know, you think, think about 2008, 2009, it was like the, the height of Manny Wood, you know, the Manny Ramirez era. It was mm-hmm. a very exciting time. The Dodgers were making the uh, postseason again. Um, it was an exciting time and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, I don't regret going back at all. I mean, it's, it's just, it's been awesome. The, the projects I've gotten to work on, uh, since 2008, um, it's, been, it's been great. And now I honestly, unless they kick me out, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'd like to stay as long as I can. Well, you know, it's, it's, this brings up something just off the cuff here that, that makes me think, I mean, I think they're, you're from in the design world, like you're synonymous with the Dodgers. And to me, there's something to be said for that. Like, that's the one thing I think that, I mean, I always have sort of just done my own thing, but that's the one thing that I'm jealous of for most people that are working in house is that like, you know, you start creating work for a place for a really long time and, and you just sort of become a, a part of that brand to outsiders even, which is, which is super cool. So, I mean, I think the fact that you went back and did that, I mean, it's obviously it's tough to, to make that decision, but it's, it's also sort of an honorable thing too. the fact that you went back and did that. So kudos to that, man. That's a, it's a huge, huge move. So are you saying it's like Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, <laughs> um, uh, Sandy well, Koufax. And- yeah. Well, maybe, 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 maybe not. Yeah. Let's, 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 let's not go. Let's not get too, uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's not toot our, horn, our horns too much here, but yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely awesome. I will say this, uh, you know, it's, it, it 
it is awesome to be a part of. And, uh, you know, I have conversations with other sports designers all the time. And uh, there's always this uh, kind of this itch to go back into freelance or this itch to do something else, like to work for uh, Nike or Adidas. And, um, you know, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very frank when telling them, like, you'll never get this kind of rush you get um, working in sports, working for a team, I should should be more specific working for a team. I mean, when your team is in the playoffs and they're the toast of the town and they're winning, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. I mean, honestly. Yeah. And you don't get that working for, a for, you know, Nike is a great place to work, I'm sure, but you don't get that working for a Nike. You don't right. get people that are as passionate. I mean, yes, there's a lot of people passionate about Nike, but you don't get people as passionate about say a Nike or an Under Armour as you do, you know, as you do with, with a sports team, mm-hmm. especially when they're winning. Well, and I think one thing too is actually uh, recently I wrote an article called Branding and Belonging. And essentially, I, what I was talking about uh, was the uh, US men's national team kit from Nike where they had black uniforms. And I was watching a game with my sons, or I was watching the. Uh, the Copa America with my sons, you know, a couple months back and they had on a black kit and, you know, my sons are like, who are we rooting for? Obviously because you need, have to have a rooting interest in sports. <laughs> and I'm like, well, we're, of course we're rooting for the U S and they're like, Oh, so which one's the U S and I was like the black team. And you know, my oldest son's like, daddy, but the, the U S isn't, we don't have black as a color. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> and it sort of made me think like uh, to go a little bit deeper, like especially on the international level about uniforms and the importance of color on, on the international scale when you have non-English speaking, you know, country, not only that, but just countries that don't speak the same language playing against each other and sort of the brand recognition that's involved with that. Um, but, but in that I actually mentioned, uh, there's a guy, his name's Wally Olins and he's one of the founders of this sort of international corporate branding firm called Wolf Owens. And he, he has this definition of the word branding about how branding is, is the sense of, is a part of the human condition because it's essentially like the sense of belonging. Like that's, that's sort of the inherent nature of it is people want to belong to things. Yeah. And you could see it when, I mean, you could see it when you attend a game, right? Like, Yeah. You're an SEC guy, right? You go to you go to football. You go to an SEC football game, and it's nuts. Yeah, and and honestly, like that to me is is as as an outsider. I've always just kind of been agency side. Even even when I worked uh, at a, at a company, I mean, it was it was IMG. So we were never, you know, I was never deeply ingrained in in a in a team. Um, but that sense of actually belonging is always something that, that is to me that's as an outsider it's the most appealing thing for working for teams especially if it's your team i mean the fact that you you are part of that i mean when there are wins like you in a very very small way obviously cuz you know nobody's going to claim obviously what happens on the field but um, you know, in a small way, you are part of that, and and I think you know we see that with people getting rings, uh, organizations getting rings, and all this, and it's it's a lot more to the uh, there's a lot more to the organization than what happens on the field, obviously, with people working behind the scenes. So that that's awesome, man. I mean that that's what makes me want to go work for a team, like go work for my own team sometimes. But you know, it's always uh, it's always uh, you have to weigh weigh things, right? Like. Is that is that what you want to do, or, or is it not what you want to do? But um, so let's let's talk a little bit about your 
we've talked about history, but you actually had an opportunity to work on the logo commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Dodger Stadium. So can you give us a little insight into that project and maybe talk about what it meant as a fan to you to contribute to something that is a piece of history like that? Um, that's one of my favorite projects. Um, just because Dodger Stadium holds a very special place in my heart as, as, a, as a Dodger fan, as a Dodger employee, as just a, a native Angelino. I mean, if you grew up in LA, going to a Dodger game is like a tradition. Even if you don't like baseball, if you're not a baseball fan, mm-hmm. um, you still, in the summer, you, that's just something you do. You go to a right. Dodger It's entertainment, right? yeah. Yeah, I mean... I mean, and, and that's and that's shown by us, you know, getting three million fans a year. It's just you know, it's Southern California. It's perfect weather during the summer at night, and and uh, it's uh, the, the stadium is just an icon within the city. Um, so to be able to work on that project was really cool. Um, you know, the funny thing is, you know, the, you know, designers talk about when they're designing a logo and they kind of just nail it you know, very early in the process, you know, some logo processes are just very drawn out. Right. This is one of those ones where I probably did like three options and they were all kind of the same. Yeah. And, uh, they were, and, uh, I, you know, I was just like, so like kept going back to that view of the stadium from uh, center field and, uh, it was pushing that and, uh, it just came together quickly from those three options and, it was actually that logo was actually designed uh, pretty quickly, um, but yeah, that's one of that's definitely one of my favorite projects by far. Uh, just to be able to use uh, the stadium colors, the pastels, um, and, and knowing that it would be a uniform patch um, is just having an effect on on uh, the on field aesthetic is never it's never something that uh, you get tired of. As yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a great logo. I'll obviously for listeners, I'll I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, I do want to talk a, a a little bit about. So a few years ago at MLC Connect, you gave a talk about developing seasonal campaigns for the Dodgers and how you had to sort of lobby a bit to to pitch against outside agencies to team executives for the upcoming season's campaign. And you 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 ended up winning the work, which is awesome. Uh, to me, it seems a bit crazy that you even have to, to do that, <laughs> being, being that there are people <laughs> in-house. Uh, but, but I think it just shows in-house designers, there's obviously a lot to listen to this show, that you constantly have to be proving your worth and your expertise to executives. And instead of being what our our favorite speaker at MLC, Ricardo Crespo, sort of refers to as a, an in-house in-house Kinkos. <laughs> um, so you lobbied in one, and and you proved that the talent is available in-house. I'm curious, what did you learn from that experience that maybe you can share with other designers that are struggling with getting their own voices heard with team executives, and and then also maybe why you believe that that work needs to be created in-house over external. Um, I have nothing against outside agencies, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the advantages you have as kind of the in-house agency are, you know, obviously you know the brand better than anyone else. You live the brand every day. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes that's even a disadvantage, but I don't. I, I think it's more of an advantage just being a part of the brand, knowing the brand, um, knowing the quirks. As far as uh, getting your voice heard, you know, we were we were in a tough spot. 
you know, we were going through an ownership change and uh, ownership didn't know us. So, you know, I get that they, I get the reasoning behind them going with a, with a, you know, with kind of the, a more flashy uh, and uh, established agency and uh, trusting what they had in-house because they didn't know us. As far as getting your voice heard, definitely um, you want to have as much control as possible as an in-house designer or an in-house design staff. That's how I look at it. You don't want an outside agency, you know, coming up with your look and, you know, making all these decisions and then you having to carry that look out for an entire year. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's torture. Um, there's, a, there's so much talent out there and uh, talent isn't exclusive to uh, these, uh, these uh, well-known agencies on the market. Uh, so if, if you feel like you have the ability and you have the talent within your own in-house team to, uh, to get it done, then definitely make a pitch. That's what we did. We, uh, we basically put together an agency-like pitch um, to our upper management and said, this is what our capability is. And uh, honestly, I think they were pretty blown away because it's easy for them to kind of go on a, go on an outside agency's website and say, Oh, this is cool stuff that they've done. But mm-hmm. you know, it's harder for them to say, well, let's look at the stuff that our internal guys have done. It's just, it's just harder for them to do that. So you, sometimes you kind of just have to remind them. So you guys, I mean, in that sense, you just took the initiative and you weren't asked to be a part of the pitch. You just did it. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, it was very much a pride thing as well. Yeah. Um, uh, makes sense, though. You know, I was just basically, I was tired of uh, this. You know, the, 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 uh, the agency will always say, oh, we'll work with you and, and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, it'll be seamless and we'll just work well together. And, you know, it just never goes that way. And, you know, as good as the intentions may be, it just never goes that way. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make those decisions. I wanted to choose our font, our secondary font. I wanted to choose the background texture. Uh, so that's kind of how that came about. It was just, you know, kind of just my competitive juices from my old sports playing days. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just coming back up to the forefront. Yeah, no doubt, man. Well, that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm glad that that was great to hear that story. And, and I think that even, you. even you sharing that, the fact that you guys made the pitch, that's, there's a lot of, I get a lot of questions from people in house and, how do we sort of get our voices heard and that type of thing? And, and I think that's great advice, man. Just show them, you know? I mean, not, you can't show them through the work that you're getting because they're not giving you that work yet, right? So maybe yeah, you just yeah. need to make it, you know, make it happen. It's funny because that's, that's, that's another problem um, that, you know, just from talking to like a lot of other designers at, at uh, the Connect Conference, um, it seems like, uh, you know, there's no consistency as to where designers or graphics teams fall in a in an organizational hierarchy mm-hmm. uh, as far as working for a sports team, and uh, it, you know it seems like like a lot of the people I were talking to, they have a they have a boss who has a boss who has a boss who has a boss, and it's tough. You know we're lucky at the Dodgers. You know we work directly with uh, our CMO, so um, it's kind of a bit easier to get our voice heard uh, in that way, um, but. You know, even if you have a boss who has a boss who has a boss who has a boss, I'd say just keep going, keep going to your boss, um, just keep bugging your boss to go to their boss to go to their boss. To go yeah. to their boss. That's the way to do it. I'm yeah. not going to encourage anyone to 
to uh, kind of break out of that hierarchy and get in trouble. But uh, yeah, there's uh, you definitely sometimes gotta got to uh, you know use uh, unconventional ways to get your voice heard. Yeah, but I mean, essentially, what you're saying though is that if you believe in it, you have to fight for it and push it, right? Yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, I think that actually leads us into uh, into what I want to talk about next, which is um, it's no secret that sports design is, is, is one of those fields that people are very passionate about or very tribal about, and they, they tend to opine, if you will, about logo and uniform changes a lot, uh, many of whom who have absolutely no respect or knowledge about the processes, bureaucracies, or amount of work involved in in projects, and I think I think for this reason, a lot of people working in house, or or even people that maybe work for some of these agencies that create, may tend to shy away from the banter for fear of losing their jobs or or even other reasons. But one thing I've always admired about you is you have no problem voicing your opinion on things like sports branding, um, be it satirical <laughs> or or on your own personal uh, account, such as your favorite basketball team, the the Clippers. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm curious, what is it about, can you discuss just your thoughts on, in general, on sharing, you know, sharing an opinion about this stuff and, and is it important for us that are, that are the professionals in this world to share our opinions and, and the, over essentially the people that are just like the, the quote unquote fans, mm. <laughs> <laughs> a little curveball here. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I'll say this, I, I, I may be a little bit outspoken at certain times, but I, I don't criticize willy-nilly. Um, uh-huh. I'll just say that uh, there are a lot of opinions out there, um, and a lot of them are from people that don't know the whole process. Um, and I do know the whole process, and I get it. You know, So I tend to not criticize based on final, like, it's, you know, you, you can't, you can't criticize a uniform or a logo. It's hard to do that because you know that there's a hundred steps that you probably don't know about or a hundred uh, different uh, things that may have happened behind the scenes that you don't know about. Right. Um, so when you see these people on message boards and, you know, in other forums, you know, kind of just picking apart stuff, it's very easy for them to criticize because, you know, they, you know, they're basically Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking. Right. Right. You know, knowing the process, I, you know, I, I don't criticize lightly. I'll just yeah. say that, mm-hmm. but crap is crap. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say that. <laughs> yeah. I think we can all agree on that. Do you, do you think that it is just, I mean, cause you, you do work in house, you are a designer, you know, the process. Are there more of us that should be having a conversation about this stuff publicly as opposed to, to just, just to kind of maybe drown out the other voices that don't know what they're talking about. I think it's good sometimes to uh, just, uh, you know, let people behind the curtain a little bit, just so when people are very critical, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, these negative reactions on forums and, and message boards are, you know, they're like, you know, they're not even, you know, they're varying levels of designer or, you know, you never know who's behind these, these handles. It, it could be a 12 year old, you know, so <laughs> yeah. it's hard to kind of engage everyone. Right. Um, but, you know, I think it just as a, just in general, you can say, well, this is, this is how this happened or this is how this decision was made. This is why, 
we put the trim on the sleeve here or, you know, uh, our owner really liked uh, this color. Um, I think it's nice to let people kind of behind the curtain in that way. And then I think, you know, people, you know, people are going to criticize regardless, but then I think people will be like, oh, okay. So that's why they did that. Right. But you can kind of go a little bit in the, in the opposite direction too, with sort of a grandiose copy, <laughs> so to speak. That's, <laughs> <laughs> You mean that great marketing speak that I that I, that I love? <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know what? It's funny. We're all guilty of it. And even sometimes I look at some of my old uh, some some old stuff that I've sent to clients, and I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really piling it on there. But, You're just uh, trying to sell it, you know. <laughs> yeah, I get it. You're selling something, and and uh, you know the client's paying for it, and and you want to justify that, but. Uh, some of these uh, these uh, justifications and this you know this quote unquote marketing speak is just it's it's getting to like absurd levels now. Yeah, I don't I don't know if you I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, a couple months ago I was watching uh, the late Sports Center um, with Scott Van Pelt, and he actually brought this stuff up in his show he like showed three different logos and he was like reading the copy and just kind of making poking fun of it like are you serious man like this is a logo like calm down <laughs> yeah yeah you know there's just certain things that like definitely you could tell they're reaching or they're or they're trying to find uh a justification or explain or explanation after the fact you know like okay you did six stars and that represents your six championships. I mean, that's fine. Right. I mean, that's, you know, I get it. But then when you're trying to uh, justify some of these other things that we've seen, uh, you know, um, silver linings, uh, calling devils, silver linings and things like that. It's just, it just, yeah. it's just too much. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, listen, Ross, in, uh, in, in closing here, um, the Dodgers are obviously we've discussed a historical organization, but they're also what I would consider an innovative organization with the ownership and even recently the partnership with the agency RGA on the Dodgers accelerator focusing on sports startups. Um, now you and I, I wouldn't necessarily consider us old by any means, but we're, we're definitely not spring chickens. <laughs> um, so I'm curious what changes over time have you seen in, in just the industry as a whole that excite you from a creative or technology perspective and, and maybe what, what do you even look forward to? It's funny. I, I'm both excited and horrified at, uh, uniform design trends. I do think, uh, I do think, uh, there's a, on one hand, we're being very, we're kind of being stale as far as uniform design. And on the other hand, I think in other cases, we're trying too hard. I like a lot of the uh, I like a lot of the new uh, technology and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, fits and fabrics that are coming out as far as uniform design goes and how those relate to the athletes on the field as far as performance. Um, I think that's uh, that's a cool direction that uh, is going to keep evolving, and that in turn is going to affect uniform design. You know, when you're talking about like these different panels and gussets on a uniform and uh right. we've actually you know we've actually kind of toyed with those already as far as the panel paneling and uh, and uh the lettering style the lettering um, 
materials. They're going with the stretchier fabrics now. Uh-huh. Um, those type of things are evolving, I think, are cool. Um, at the same time, uh, we have this whole uh, movement of throwback uniforms, which people love. You know, people just love these throwback uniforms. And uh, I'm going to make a prediction. I think, and it's already happening, the, I think pullover jerseys are coming back to baseball. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're just functional. They, they translate well to retail. Uh, we actually tried one with our um, AAA team in Oklahoma City. So there's going to be this kind of confluence of, uh, of uh, you know, these space-age materials and fabrics on throwback silhouettes. And I, I, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Uh, as far as uh, logos go and, uh, and the non-uniform-related things, the roundel is obviously back with a vengeance. <laughs> um, and I get it. You know, those fit perfectly within Twitter avatars and whatnot. And I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing. It's just, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's creating a new challenge for designers. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you make your roundel better than or different than the other ones, right? Right, right. So that's a trend that's going to be very interesting. Does it seem like we're kind of going back to uh, just from a branding perspective, logos, I guess specifically, almost like one a one color look where everything yeah. just yeah yeah logos are definitely getting a, a more simplified. Um, um, they're definitely being being pared down from what I like to call the golden era of uh, graphic design. Yeah. Which is the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I always refer to the nineties on here. That's... Uh, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely biased when I say that, you know, we're losing a lot of the beveling and uh, the uh, extra outlining and things right. like that. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that's a, that's a bad thing. It's just an evolution. Um, but then you do kind of look back at uh, these old, uh, well, now they're old, but these '90s logos, like the like the uh, Keel Pistons logo, yeah, yeah, uh, and it's like, well, you know, that was kind of cool. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think it's going to be cyclical. Obviously, everything's cyclical, but I think yeah, totally. I think you're going to start. You know, we're going to get to a point where everything's pared down, and um, you know, everything kind of looks like a Starbucks logo, and then right. it's going to kind of come back, and we're going to get all these, uh, you know the beveling and 3d effects again. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's just what happens in, in art in general. If like you just look at art history, I mean, this is like a pendulum that will just swing. So it'll be interesting. But anyway, uh, listeners, there you have it, man. That's, uh, that's, that's Ross, one of the veterans, uh, making some bold predictions here. <laughs> oh, you're making me feel old. <laughs> I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there with you. Um, well, listen, uh, I really appreciate it. I'm super glad we got to connect. And just in closing, where can folks reach out to you online or follow your work or just support you and, and what you're doing? Uh, follow me on Twitter at RY Design LA. Um, there you'll also find a link to my Behance portfolio. And um, you can see some of my favorite projects there. Um, but the best way to probably reach out to me is Twitter. I'm a very interactive Twitter user, as you know. Awesome. And then you're also on the board of MLC Connect. So anybody that attends that conference can find you there as well. Any questions about the Connect conference, uh, you can hit me up at my personal Twitter handle or at 
at MLC Connect. And uh, I'm actually the social media manager. Uh, that's what Chris uh, Garcia uh, tasked, tasked me to do. So yeah, if you get a reply from at MLC Connect, that's me. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, well I appreciate the time and, uh, and go Dodgers. Thanks, Adam. It was great talking to you, man. <laughs> All right, man. My next guest is going to be Samir Goal. Samir is the VP of digital products at Major League Soccer here in the U.S. Many of you that deeply follow the sports business may know that the MLS is really putting an emphasis on digital initiatives. And Samir leads the digital team, which is comprised of strategists, designers, and technologists in the organization. For more on Samir, you can follow him at Samir Goal, that is S-A-M-I-R-G-O-L-E, or head over to MLS Digital Labs blog on Medium at labs.mlssoccer.com. Big thanks again to Ross Yoshida for taking time uh, during this busy baseball season to come aboard the podcast. Again, as he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter at RYDesignLA or check out some of his work on his Behance at behance.net slash RossYO. Also, be sure to follow the conference that he mentioned he's a board member of and we refer to a lot on the show at MLC Connect. If you're interested in hearing more Makers of Sport episodes, then head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss things like business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. As mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, halftime episodes since episode 65 are actually available only to paid community members. If you want to support the podcast, you can join the community at makersofsport.com slash community, where you will get future halftime episodes and their transcriptions, private Q&As with future, former, and special guests, monthly Google Hangouts, and an invite to the live chat app Slack. In addition, you'll also get an opportunity to take part in the high school project, which is a pro bono branding project that community members are taking part in for underfunded high school athletic programs around the U.S. More on that particular initiative can be found in episode 75 called Donating Your Creativity. All community content is recorded and available at any time you join, including the private Q&As. I have a lot of stuff planned for you this fall with Snapchat takeovers. If you're on Snapchat, be sure to follow Makers of Sport. If not, this may be a good time to get initiated as we have community members from sports organizations around the U.S. taking over the account for live behind the scenes of their game days, training camps, and more. It's a great opportunity to see what folks that create work for your favorite teams do in order to get ready for their season or their games. Our last takeover was community member and graphic designer Meg Majera as she took us behind the scenes for the Indianapolis Colts training camp. Now obviously with Snapchat the stories disappear after 24 hours on the account so the account will most likely be dormant most of the time until a takeover happens but by following the account it will pop up in your stories when it does happen. I want to reiterate that the podcast is listener supported and not sponsor supported. You'll never hear ads on the show or have to hit the 30 second skip button on your podcast app to speed through sponsors. So if you get value from the content from this podcast or its outlets in social media, email newsletters or other areas, then I ask that you please consider supporting 
the podcast by voting with your hard-earned dollars and joining the community. And in exchange for that fiscal support, there is premium content and a network of like-minded creatives in various sports organizations around the world, actually, ready for you to interact with. For those that can't afford it at this very moment or just for casual listeners, have no fear. The interview episodes will be free forever. And you can still show your support for the podcast by leaving reviews, retweeting, sharing the show, and signing up for the newsletter. That email newsletter will get you podcast show notes delivered directly to your inbox and also includes Weekend Reads, a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content and share things I'm reading, things that I find interesting, or things that inspire me for the week. In addition on that list, you'll be notified in advance of upcoming guests by going to makersofsport.com slash email, entering your email address. You can stay in touch with the podcast and the future happenings of the show. To review the show as mentioned, you just need to take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes, hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. Again, if you've gotten value for myself or any of the guests on the show, then please rate the podcast so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you enjoy listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on all social media, including Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and pretty much everywhere else on the interwebs. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. Make your